Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, one announcement is that this Saturday, day after tomorrow, we've got the uh, ladies' prayer brunch at the West Falls at 10.30 in the morning. And there's a sign-up sheet out in the foyer, and I guess maps or instructions on how to get there. And if you don't know, you can ask Tuts on the back row. She's dressed like it's Christmas. I think that's the only announcement. Oh, no, this is the season to be flexible. Now, I don't want anybody to be surprised when I say this. But it doesn't look like the contractor's next door on schedule. <laughs> but it, <clears throat> it does look like they're only a couple of days off schedule, so they'll probably still be get to the point where they'll be cutting through and starting to tear out the back walls and do all that next week. So we will not have Bible class next week. I will be at the uh, pre-trib conference Monday through Wednesday. And I am presenting a paper, several people have asked about this, I'm presenting a paper where I have uh, written a scholarly paper, hopefully we'll get it published somewhere, on my argument that the angels in Revelation 2 and 3 should be understood to be angels and not pastors or messengers or some of the other views that are out there and why that is significant, especially in light of the angelic conflict. And that paper has been posted on the uh, Dean Bible website, so you can uh, go there and download it and read it next week instead of coming to Bible class. Any other announcements? Flexibility, next week no Bible class. We don't know about the week after that. We'll just have to wait and see. And Sunday morning after church, as you can tell, the, the chairs have all gotten moved around because we had the Logos training here the last couple of days. But Sunday after church, we're going to need to stack them all up and get them away from the back walls Anyway, so they can get ready, and there'll be a lot of movement. Just we just need flexibility. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that uh, we're all in fellowship, ready to focus and study this evening, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening. We're thankful that we have your word to teach us about the nature of reality. We thank you that you are God who controls history, and from your word we realize that there is a plan, that history is not just a series of chance events, but that you are orchestrating things behind the scenes. Father, we live in a time in this country when many things are in turmoil, many things have degraded over the last hundred years, 
and there's uh, many threats on the horizon, but we know that you're in control and that our security, our safety is in your character and in your plan, not in the events in history. Now, Father, as we study these things, we pray you'd encourage us, strengthen us, that we might have a greater appreciation of all that you have done for us and all that our Lord Jesus Christ is doing for us right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we've gone through the last chapter of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7, we've been focusing on the high priestly ministry of Christ, that this follows after the pattern of the priestly, the royal priesthood of Melchizedek, not that of the uh, physical, physically based priesthood of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And as we come to chapter 8, we come to these first six verses that seem to be a transition from this argument on the superiority of Christ's priesthood to this uh, discussion of his uh, of, of the new covenant that begins in verse 7. And that's what you get if you just sort of hit it first two or three times you read through this. But there's more going on in the text, and you don't really pick it up in the English because you have to uh, and, and for, to some degree, be aware of Greek vocabulary that's used in, in the previous chapter, and even all the way back to chapter 1. There are a lot of ideas, as I'll show you as we go through this, that are picked up in these first six verses of chapter 8 that take us back to the first four verses of chapter 1. And what the writer is doing, as I've pointed this out many times, is it's like he's weaving a rope. That's the best analogy I can come up with, where he lays down one thread, and then he lays down a second thread and a third thread, and then he begins to weave them together, and then he brings in a third thread, and then he works with another set of threads over here and starts to pull them in. And so he's constantly going back and picking up ideas and doctrines he's already discussed and then bringing them forward in his, the development of his thought. It's very logical and very rationally developed, but it's not always as clear in the English as it is in the Greek, simply because uh, the, the Greek writer, the original writer, is using uh, vocabulary that he's already introduced. And so you say, wait a minute, I saw that word back here, a chapter or two, and that sort of pulls things together for you. So we come to the first verse. In verse 1, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying, colon, and that is a a good way to handle this. That's how it's handled in the New King James, because it's not a summary as much as he is building on what he has said in chapter 7, and now he's making an additional point, a point that it builds on and borrows from what he has said in chapter 7, but he's taking it to the next level in the argument. And he says, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, that first phrase, this is the main point, is a translation of one Greek word, kephalion, which is related to kephale, which is the... Uh, Greek word for head, or sometimes a th- that is used to mean authority. Uh, you see it in certain English words. Uh, someone who's uh, what is it, hydrocephalic, 
uh, has got water on the brain. That, that's the right term. That comes from the same Greek word. And it has the idea of adding something up or coming to the main point or the head point, depending on how it fits in the context. It's not coming to a, um, a summation here as, as much as he's emphasizing this is the point I want you to understand. Everything in chapter 7 has built to this point, and now he is he's making the point, and that is that we have such a high priest. The main verb that we find in this verse is we have such a high priest. We have a high priest. That's our main verb, and that tells us that that's what he is discussing here is the nature of Christ's high priesthood. And he, he begins by saying, um, we have such a high priest, and this takes us back to... Verse 26, I'm going to skip ahead here because I've got a slide out of order. Somewhere I had a slide here. Maybe I'm out of order. Okay, never mind, we'll get there eventually. Um, If you look at verse 26 of the last chapter, it begins, For such a high priest. That word such is the same Greek word that we have in 8.1. He's making a definite connection that we have such a high priest. Verse 27 says, or verse 26 says, For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So verse 26 leads up to this idea of this kind of high priest. The Greek word here is toiutas, and it has the, the, the sense of, of this sort, of this kind, and it denotes a certain character or individuality. So we have a high priest with a certain character, one who fits a certain template, as it were, that is necessary to fulfill the divine plan. Now, about the, the fact that we have such a high priest, he makes... Um, Three statements. The first statement is that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's all one relative clause. Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now there's a couple of things we need to observe about this particular, about this particular verse. First of all, he's seated. It is an <clears throat> aorist tense verb. It is action that is, uh, indicates that his work is complete on the cross so that he is no longer working in terms of accomplishing salvation. It's done. It's over with. He is now seated because his work on the cross is finished. When he concluded his work on the cross, he said, uh, die, which means it has been completed or it is finished. And it was a perfect tense verb indicating uh, completed action with results that continue. And because the work on the cross was finished, he could ascend to heaven, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, all those elements are important. He's at the right hand of the throne. 
And we need to pay attention to this because the concept of throne is very important. We have a number of different thrones in the Bible, and a throne relates to a kingdom, and it relates to rulership. And Jesus is not saying that he is sitting on a throne, but that he is at the right hand of the throne. The word throne is used 53 times in the New Testament, and the majority of times it is a reference to the throne of the Father. But in some key passages, it references the throne of David and the future throne of the Messiah, the greater son of David, who will rule on his throne in the millennial kingdom. And this is the way it is used in Matthew 19:28. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration. Now, in the regeneration is a technical term there. Uh, it's not talking about the salvation of an individual. It's talking about in the regeneration in the new heavens and the new earth in the future kingdom of Christ. Not That's not the new heavens and the new earth. I, I realize that. But it's talking about that, that the whole future. It's a, it's a rather general term for um, in the future when the Son of Man is sitting on his glorious throne. The millennial kingdom is the first phase, and then that goes into eternity. The millennial kingdom is phase one of eternity, and the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't stop reigning at the end of the millennial kingdom. So the term the regeneration not only includes the millennial kingdom, but goes on into eternity. And it is then and only then that he sits on his throne. He is not said to sit on a throne until he returns at the second, at the second coming. This throne in the millennial kingdom is linked to the throne of David in Luke 1.32, where the angel tells Mary he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So he is destined as the Son of David, and that term Son of David is important in uh, Hebrews, because we go back to his sonship. He's the son of God. He's the son of David. All these terms related to sonship are go back to the first four verses in the first chapter. So he's got this future throne, and it's the throne of his father David. We go back to the first chapter in Hebrews 1.8. There's a quote from Psalm 45, 6-7 that is applied not to the father but to the son. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And there it is, the throne is applied to uh, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ when he rules as the Davidic, as the Davidic king. Then when we get to Revelation 3.21... We have a reference to his throne, but it's still a future concept. He says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Uh, overcomer believers in the church age don't sit with him on his throne until after the judgment seat of Christ, after the second coming. That's when he has a throne. And he says then, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So currently, Jesus is not sitting on his throne. He is sitting on his father's throne. 
And this is important when you study prophecy and study issues related to eschatology because in amillennialism and postmillennialism and this new thing that's been developed uh, in the last 20 years called uh, progressive dispensationalism, which is neither progressive nor dispensational, but is uh, held by, I'd say, most of the faculty at Dallas Seminary. Now, not all, but I'd say at least half. Um, they argue that Jesus is sitting on some form of the Davidic throne in heaven right now. And this violates your basic literal hermeneutic. In fact, they had to um, invent a new hermeneutic that they call complementary hermeneutics. I'm not going to get into that, but see, when you start messing with the text, you start have to start messing with hermeneutics. So the point I want to make here is simply that the first thing that is said about uh, about the Lord and his priesthood is that he is seated at the right hand of the throne. So he exercises his high priestly ministry from the right hand of the Father in session. That word session comes from the Latin word sessionum, which means to be seated. So this is what's happening today. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, the second thing that is said about him is in the first phrase of the second verse. And this verse says he's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Now, I'm going to come back and look at the details of this uh, in a minute. But right now, I'm just summarizing the three things that are said about Jesus. First of all, as a high priest, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, not on high. We have the phrase on high in one one. We'll come back to that or Excuse me, in one three, we'll come back to that in a minute as I show the connections between these verses and the first chapter. But he is at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. He is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. And the third thing that is said is about that tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. It is God who built this. This is the archetype a tabernacle in heaven. And as we saw last time, the word that's translated tabernacle or sanctuary here is the, uh, excuse me, the word that's tra- translated tabernacle is the Greek word skene, which has to do with a dwelling place. So this is the dwelling of God in the third heavens, the throne of God. And there is a holy uh, place there, uh, which is indicated by the word sanctuary from the Greek word hagios, uh, which we'll get into that detail in just a minute. So this is what is said in the first uh, two verses, three things about his priesthood. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is a minister, and that word minister has to do with his priestly service. Uh, he is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, and that this a sanctuary and true tabernacle was erected by God, not man, so it's a heavenly uh, tabernacle. Now, before we get much further, just in terms of summary, there are five points stated in these six verses regarding the superiority of Jesus as the high priest. That's the point that we're leading up to, is this superiority of his priesthood. And that be, this discussion about his high priestly ministry began in chapter 7, but it doesn't end until we get to chapter 12, 
verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, it's emphasizing that aspect of his session. So this whole section that we're in from 7 through the first uh, couple of verses of 12 deal with the high priestly ministry of Christ and the value of that for the believer today. And as I stated when we began Hebrews, and don't forget this, is the purpose for this is not to get all bogged down in a lot of intricate and interesting doctrine, but it is to motivate us as believers in the church age in light of what Jesus is doing for you right now at the right hand of the Father to strengthen each one of us in our spiritual growth in preparing us for that future uh, responsibility when we reign with him as kings and priests. And so we are in our training ground. We are in spiritual boot camp right now in training for that future position, that future role, that future responsibility. And last time I tried to connect that to all these other things that are going on in relation to the angelic, uh, angelic conflict and in terms of uh, the covenants and how all these covenants fit together. So the first thing, the first point that is made is that Jesus is a better priest than Aaron uh, based on the use of toiutas, such a one, in 8.1, and uh, which is uh, laid out from 4.16 down to 7.28. So he's a better priest than Aaron because he fits a better priestly uh, prototype, which is the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, as we look at these verses, we look at 8.1, we think back in terms of what we've studied, there's some things that we ought to point out. Just, just You can hold your place here so you can mark some things in the text, but I'm going to put these two verses up here on the screen for you. Sometimes I, I, I wonder if I put too many verses up here that you don't turn, use your Bible enough. But you need to be using your Bible. I just used the screen to, to make points a little in, in a visual way, make it a little easier for you. If you look at 8.1, I'm just going to read it to you. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, here we're talking about one who is seated at the right hand of God. But the focus is on him being high priest. And he, as a high priest, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now look at Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3 says, and he, and that's the son, because that's who he talks about in Hebrews 1.2, is the son. So we're not talking about him as the high priest, but as the son. He, the son, is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see the similarity in terminology, except he said the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Verse 3 says, at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Greek word hupsalos, uh, and, and in 8.1, we have Uranus, which is heavens. Now, what's interesting as you look at this 
is that the subject in verse verse in chapter one verses one through four is on Jesus as Son, but when you come to the end of chapter seven, the focus is on Jesus as the high priest, and seven twenty seven and twenty eight connect up with eight one and give us an interesting read. For example, in 27 we say, He does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So that ties that word offering to what happened on the cross. So when we get to verse uh, 3, it's going to talk about every high priest is appointed to offer. So in verse 27, nails the offering is that which occurs on the cross. 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son. See, you didn't expect son in the context of chapter 7. You expected to read appoint a high priest. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's interweaving this idea of his sonship and his high priestly ministry. And in one passage, he uses the same terminology, but he talks about him as a son in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And then in Hebrews 7, he's talking about him as a high priest. And when you come down through verse 28, when we expect it to say that uh, the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a high priest. No, it appoints a son who made perfect forever. And then in verse 1, Now, this is the main point of the things. We have such a high priest. What I want you to see is how the writer interconnects, weaves these ideas together so that the concept of his sonship, the fulfillment of his sonship, and his high priestly ministry are are inseparable. And this has been the focus for... Uh, since chapter 4 is developing the fact that the one who is the Son is our high priest. And we can't distinguish the two, that God became a man so that he could serve as our high priest. A high priest has to partake of both the character, the nature of those who he's representing and the one to whom he's representing, or a high priest partakes of the nature of whom he's representing, but a, a mediator partakes of both. And we have the idea of mediator uh, comes up in chapter, um, chapter 8, verse 6, that he is also mediator of a better covenant. So the idea of priesthood, mediator, and sonship are all woven together in these verses to demonstrate the superiority of Christ's priesthood because he is a priest as a son and as a mediator. The second thing that's brought out in these verses is that he works in a better or superior sanctuary or um, holy place. Literally, it's holy place. Uh, could be sanctuary, but holy place. He works in a superior holy place in 8.2 and 8.5. Moses and the Levitical priesthood served in a copy or a shadow of that sanctuary. But Christ is in the archetypical holy place. 
He offers a better sacrifice. It, it is a once for all sacrifice when he offered up himself according to verse 27. And fourth, he's the mediator of a better covenant. Now, this is something that hit me. I've written a number of papers years ago uh, when I was in a doctoral program at Dallas Seminary and when I used to write a newsletter. Tommy and I used to publish a newsletter on dispensational issues uh, about 20 years ago and wrote a number of articles on the New Covenant. And I don't know, it's been a while since I've been into this doctrine, so maybe I saw it 20 years ago or not. But the whole point of verses 1 through 5 is that Christ in his high priestly ministry right now is functioning as a mediator of the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is defined in context as... The covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah in verse 8. Now that probably went past you. Let me set it up again because we'll spend some time on this next time we have uh, our next lesson. In the history of dispensationalism, there was a period of time in the, uh, prob- in the early 20th century, early half of the 20th century, when it was typical of People such as Schofield, I believe, Chafer for sure, Walbert in his early years, Ryrie in his early years, and others taught a two, what was called a two new covenant view, that there was a new covenant with the church and a new covenant with Israel. But when you get into the New Testament, there's no passage that ever talks about a new covenant with the church. But when you have Jesus talking to his disciples at the, at the Last Supper, saying, giving them the cup, this is the new covenant of my blood which is given for you. And then Paul talks about the fact that he is a minister of the new covenant. The deduction was that that must mean that there is a new covenant for the church. But in neither of those two passages is it stated that the new covenant is with the church. Now, if the present priestly ministry of Christ, his high priestly ministry in session, is a function of his being a mediator of the new covenant. You would think, logically, if there were two new covenants, that that would be with the new covenant of the church, not a new covenant with Israel, because he's functioning as our high priest. But see, that's not what we have here. He's talking about the fact that he is the minister, the mediator of a better covenant in verse 6, And that better covenant is the covenant, verse 8, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's not a, there's not a, a, a new covenant with the church, is what I'm saying. You were probably taught that at some point, but there is only one new covenant. It's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And the church participates as a beneficiary of that covenant. And the the pattern that I use, the model I use, is the same thing you have in the Old Testament. God makes a contract with Abraham, and he has his covenant with Abraham, and he says, on the basis of my contract with you, I'm going to bless the Gentiles. The new covenant is a contract between God and Israel. It supplants the old covenant of the Mosaic law. And on the basis of this new covenant, He's going to bless all people. Same, it's a development of that third paragraph in the Abrahamic covenant. And so it, it fits perfectly with the whole stream of revelation 
that the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah is that covenant which was established on the cross but it doesn't go into effect until the second coming. But we participate in blessing from that contract in the church age because it's related to our future rule and reign with Christ as the high priest and we are priests. So it relates to our position in Christ as the party of the first part of the covenant as opposed to being related to Judah and Israel, the party, the second party of the covenant. So that makes sense. So that we receive the blessing and still on the basis of this legal foundation that, that God, that God establishes. So, uh, Christ is superior as a high priest because he's a better priest than Aaron. He works in a superior, uh, holy place. He offers a better sacrifice. He's the mediator of a better covenant, and his work rests on better promises. His work rests on better promises, the end of verse 6, that he's a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises, and we'll get into that in the next lesson. Once he establishes this, then he will go on to four remaining points, in the next three chapters, that he will discuss the better covenant in 8, 7 to 13. He will go into a detailed explanation and analysis of the uh, better sanctuary in 9, 1 through 12. He will explain the better sacrifice in 9, 13 to 10, 18, and the better promises in 10, 19, all the way through to 12, 3. So that gives you kind of an overview of... Um, of what's coming up. So the point of chapter 8 verses 1 through 6 is to build this transition reaching all the way back to 1 1 through 4, connecting his sonship, connecting his high priestly ministry, connecting the uh, whole superiority of his ministry that's been under discussion the last couple of chapters, even going back to uh, such verses as uh Hebrews 4.14, that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is all points tested as we are yet without sin. So all of these things are pulled together. These threads are pulled together into this uh, developing uh, doctrine of the high priestly ministry of Christ. Okay, now let's go back to look at verse 2. He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. This is the uh, prototype dwelling place in heaven. As I said earlier, this is the Greek word skene, meaning habitation, dwelling place, or tent. It's the same word in the Hebrew where we get the word shekinah, which means dwelling place. Shekinah is not used anywhere in the Hebrew Old Testament. It was a, uh, a rabbinical word coined to uh, explain the dwelling of God in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The dwelling place, the tabernacle, another word for tabernacle, is the Hebrew word mishkan. Same root, that S-H-K-N is your, your root word. It goes over into uh, Greek as skene, and I was surprised a couple of years ago I was teaching this and something related to this, 
uh, in when I was over in Ukraine, and I kept hearing every time I would say skene, talking about dwelling, I would hear the Russian translator using the word skene. So the word there's a Russian word skene. All of it goes back to the Hebrew root. Uh, this heavenly dwelling place is emphasized a number of places. Hebrews 9.11, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Going back to Exodus 25.9, according where God told Moses, according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So, the earthly tabernacle is modeled or patterned after a heavenly uh, archetype. Okay, back to A2. Christ is a minister of the sanctuary. There are two key words here. Minister is a word that sort of loses, um, loses a little bit of its significance in our current culture. It's the Greek word liturgos, which has to do, it's a noun meaning a servant, but in the context of the scripture, it always relates to service in the tabernacle, service in the temple, service related to serving God. So it is a priestly servant. This is a word uh, commonly used in the Old Testament uh, Septuagint in, in relationship to the function of the priests in the uh, tabernacle. The word sanctuary is a translation of the Greek word hagias, which means a holy place, technically a place that is set apart for the uh, dwelling of God because it's related to skene in, con- in contrast. So Christ becomes a minister that he functions as a priestly servant in the holy of holies. That, that word hagias Hagion, holy of holies, is used when we get into chapter nine, and this this inner sanctum, the dwelling place of God, which is the true tabernacle, a true dwelling place of God, which the Lord erected, and not man. It has it ultimately will end when we get into the new heavens and the new earth. So then we get into the third verse which begins with the phrase for, and it introduces uh, an explanation. Actually, it uh, begins to develop something uh, that um, uh, and, and lays a groundwork for what, what comes. The for here doesn't explain what happens before, but is building a case. And we read, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And the reason I set that apart in the in the verse is because that's just a generic statement. It is a uh, general principle. It is a nomic use of the pres- uh, present tense, a nomic present of the verb kathistemi, and it's just a generally true statement that a, a priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's the principle, universal principle. Therefore, and then we have the second part of the verse, applies this to Christ. It is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Now, when you read that word, it is necessary. This is a 
Greek word uh, on a case which goes back to 727, where we read in the English, he does not need, that's that word, there's a necessity there, uh, who does not need daily. So there is a, a connection, and that word is used in verse 27. So he, the writer, again, is, is being very uh, artful in the way he uses his vocabulary to tie his sections uh, together. What he's saying here, it's necessary that this one, that is this high priest, also have something to offer. And the something that he has to offer is his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. It's not an ongoing sacrifice. It's not the idea of the Roman Catholic Mass that every time you have a Mass, there is a, a re-crucifixion of Christ. It doesn't have to go on repeatedly. It was a once-for-all sufficient sacrifice for sin, not an ongoing action. Then we come to verse 4, where he sets up an unreal condition. This is a second-class condition, if and it's not. If he were on earth, but he's not, he would not be a priest. If he were on the earth, but were he, he's not, it's just an, uh, an argument for, from uh, supposition, but it's not true, he would not be a priest. Jesus couldn't fit the pattern of priests. He's just going back very simply to what he has stated earlier, that to function on the earth, he'd have to function according to the standards of the, of the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law. And since he wasn't of the tribe of Levi, since he didn't fit those qualifications, he couldn't serve as a priest. So if he were on the earth, but he's not, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. And these priests serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. See, what he's coming back, he's just restating it over again. He wants to make sure we don't miss the point. The earthly priests serve a earthly copy, but Jesus is a heavenly high priest, on a superior priesthood serving in the better or the superior sanctuary in heaven. Uh, Earthly priests serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, that is God, said to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now there's a couple of interesting words here. And I didn't put them into a slide, but they're just synonymous. The word for um, the word for copy is the Greek word hupodegmatai. Shadows the word skia, and these are virtually synonymous. And what's saying is that the tabernacle on earth is just a shadow image, a shadow copy of an ultimate reality that is in heaven. Another key word that's used here is the word down in in the last uh, line, pattern, that's the Greek word tupos, where we get our word type. A type is a pattern. It is like a stamp uh, of a die and that sets uh, uh, the boundaries or the limits of something. So um, what we have here is that there is a heavenly type, a heavenly pattern that is simply reflected in a shadow on the heavenly, uh, um, excuse me, on the earthly tabernacle. And then we come to verse 6, 
but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has obtained this more excellent ministry. Why? Because of what he did on the cross. See, God's plan was that Jesus Christ, instead of God requiring man to be righteousness and to produce righteousness, God sent his son who would go to the cross and he would bear our sins in his body and then his righteousness would be uh, given to us, knowing that we could never satisfy the demands of the law in and of ourselves. Uh, The law required a man to be something he could not be, so Jesus Christ fulfilled that on his own. So because he has done that, because he completed the offering, he has now obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is mediator of a better covenant, which was established on a better promise. So we have three things that are superior here, a more excellent ministry, a better covenant, and a better uh, promise. Now, I want you to note the similarity between verse 6 and verse 4. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. In Hebrews 1.4 we read, Having become as much better than the angels, he inherited a more excellent name than they. So see, he's using the similar uh, type of uh, superlative language to emphasize his superior position as our high priest. And this is based on two things, the better covenant and the promises of the covenant, that he is a mediator of this better covenant. Now, we're probably going to wrap up a little early tonight because I don't want to get too far into the new covenant, but I want to at least introduce it with a diagram that I think helps to explain it a little bit. We're going to look at the fact that in the Old Testament you have promises that are made to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises that are made to Moses, and these promises are eventually fulfilled in the future, not yet. Down here we insert the dispensational chart of the ages, starting with the formation of Israel, back with uh, Abraham and then uh, Moses. It's, I don't have all the dispensations in here. We just have the Old Testament layout, and then we get into the church age, and then the millennial kingdom. With the formation of Israel... This is based on the Abrahamic covenant, which promised land, three things, land, seed, and blessing. The land part is developed in the real estate covenant. The seed is developed in the Davidic covenant, which is fulfilled when Jesus returns. And the new covenant is developed in Jeremiah 31, and it's fulfilled. Notice the solid line means that it's not fulfilled until the same point as the Davidic covenant and the land covenant when Jesus returns at the second coming, but the dashed line indicates that it has application to the church today. It's not a solid line because there's not a new covenant is not being fulfilled today. It is merely being applied uh, to the church. So that's a, a, a diagram. That's a diagram that will become um, fairly familiar to you over the next couple of lessons as we go through the rest of chapter 8. Well, I'm going to stop there 
because we're just coming up, we've laid the foundation for verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, indicating that there was a inherent, uh, there's an aspect about that first covenant, the old covenant, that is temporary. It was never intended to be permanent. And it seems like I get into this discussion at least two or three times a year with uh, some new pastor trying to work his way through things, is that we've almost put ourselves in a verbal trap by calling these covenants conditional and unconditional. Because there are conditions, even in the Abrahamic covenant, that the covenant is permanent, but it has conditions. The Jews could not enjoy the full scope of the land unless they were obedient and rightly related to God. That's a condition. But if they don't fulfill the condition, the covenant's not removed. It's just that that generation isn't going to experience it. So we get into a little trap here with our terminology. So I've tried for the last several years to condition myself to use, there are not, no pun intended, condition myself to use the phrase um, permanent versus temporary, that the Abrahamic covenant, the, new, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant are permanent covenants. The old covenant was a temporary covenant. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that there was something inherent about it that was temporary. That's why you have a new covenant called a new covenant, because it's replacing the old covenant. The old covenant was never intended to last forever, but the new covenant is. So by by its very nature, the Mosaic law was not intended to be permanent, but temporary and isn't... um, uh, isn't fully instigated, isn't instigated until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. But we'll get into that next time. We'll go back into Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel and uh, some of the other Old Testament passages related to the New Covenant and then connect it all up with uh, Hebrews 8. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things this evening, to go through this passage, to see how intricate your plan is, to see how Uh, intricately you have revealed yourself to us that we have to study your word and be very careful how we handle it uh, that we can fully understand all that you've provided for us we thank you that we have a superior high priest in Jesus Christ who right now is our intercessor who is right now uh, praying for us who is uh, involved in training us to rule and reign with him in the future. We pray that we might be motivated by these realities. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.